In Latin America, uh, a Bolivian politician has done something that, uh, well, it'd be interesting to see if anywhere, if anywhere else would ever do it. They invited unhappy voters to insult him in person. Let's get more on that from John Bonfio, who's the Latin America correspondent. And John, good morning to you. And uh, this is, t t tell us more about this particular story. Yeah, I, I mean, Bolivia has had a tumultuous year, you know, by, by any measures. Uh, Latin America often has ups and downs politically. Um, and they've just had a, a new election where the, the incumbent president, Luis Arce, from the left-wing Socialist Party has won an, an overwhelming majority. Um, nearly 60% of the vote went to him and the second-place candidate at 30%. Um, so an, an, essentially an incredible mandate in terms of the year that they've, that they've had. And this is one of those things where um, politicians are trying to get back in favour with um, and gain trust with, with voters after a period in which um, they felt massively disenfranchised. I mean, partly because of the political process and what took place with the, the flawed or fraudulent, fraudulent election which took place a year ago. And then the subsuming of power by without an election by the right. And obviously now in a COVID context, this this sense that the politicians are completely out of touch. So this is an, an attempt by not just that one politician, but a number of different politicians to try, try and curry favor with the with the electorate. Once again, I think one of the things we often forget about Bolivia is what a small country it is. I mean, it's got, basically got a population of of 11 million people. And if you look at the, the statistics, I mean, it doesn't seem too high in terms of COVID infection, but essentially one in 70, 75 people have had the, the, um, the virus. So really, politically speaking, socially, politically speaking, it's almost more relevant to think of Bolivia as a kind of as a small island country rather than a big Latin America yeah. economy. So often politics plays out very differently there to how it does elsewhere. Yeah, it's squashed between uh, Peru and uh, Paraguay and uh, south of south of Colombia. If anybody's kind of th trying to think, it, where, where exactly is it? Uh, to the to the west of Brazil. Um, but this guy, he was he he came a distant third in election and uh, elections and hoped to prove that he was not a coward. So he said, "Why don't you, you unhappy voters? Why don't you come to my local town square, which is in Potosí in Bolivia, and insult me in person rather than online?" What happened? Um, yeah, well, a lot of people turned up and um, and gave him gave him what for. I, again, it was you know it's one of those. I mean, I think two things are at play here. One is, as you say, was um, you know essentially a, a kind of a, a publicity gimmick. But I think there's also this this deep frustration in a contemporary context with the fact that. You know, a lot of criticisms take place on social media and there's a lot of it's a very shouty space and nothing really very much gets achieved. So it also was, I think, a genuine attempt beyond the politics on on his part to kind of make that point. But it didn't really you know, do him any great favours at the ballot box for sure. No, and he just got pelted with tomatoes and coins and projectiles and he had to go and call the police in the end. That was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you never John, really want the police to be turning up for anything. <laughs> John, I'm interested in the Oxford vaccine story and the Brazilian connection because one of the the um, volunteers in the trial has died and it's put some a lot of pressure on on AstraZeneca to continue the trial. It has um, this this trial and the that's taking place not just in in Brazil but in a number of different other countries. Obviously, is very high profile for lots of different reasons in terms of the urgency 
know, the, the, the vaccine to, to come to pass and so on. And, and certainly one of the most important ones seemingly out there. This made international news with the death of this, this trialist, uh, recently, but I think it was a little bit more shouty really than what was taking place behind the scenes. And the trial continues. And a lot of the media reaction has been about the trial continuing, you know, the light of this death and so on. But in terms of what's been released in, 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 in terms of information, it seems pretty clear that actually this was one of the control patients, so they were not given the the trial vaccine. It was already a pre-established meningitis vaccine that was that was given to them. So um, there's no great fear in terms of this particular incident. I mean, obviously tragic though, though it is for the for the individual involved that it was anything to do with the actual vaccine itself that was being um, given to the uh, to, to the large group. So the the, the trial continues um, un, unchecked. There's another story, though, isn't there, with uh, the president, uh, Brazilian president Bolsonaro, because there's a potential Chinese vaccine, which he has already said that the that the Brazilian people will not be guinea pigs for. Yeah, I mean, he's he's always, you know, he always shoots from the hip and uh, changes direction uh, a number of different uh, times a day, and so at the moment he's actually riding on a on a crest of support, which is remarkable for somebody who only three or four months ago was, you know, plumbing the depths of popularity. But, but the Senate has, has passed, um, a stimulus package, uh, about a month ago in which a lot of, um, your average Brazilians have, have received, a, uh, an economic payout. So even though it was the Senate that passed this and, and not Bolsonaro, he's, he's, uh, been given that, or he's received a, 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 an amount of support as a result of, um, of that. But as per usual with Bolsonaro, he sort of has these people that he he massively supports in a sort of, you know, Trumpian U.S. context. But then there are the bogeymen in, in the Bolsonaro universe and and China is is part of that. So a lot of the rhetoric that you hear coming out of the Bolsonaro playbook definitely echoes Donald Trump in a, in a you know, bashing of China context. Whenever we talk about Brazil, we so often talk about things going on in the Amazon and what has been happening there, because uh, we've heard that the that the burning down of the Amazon uh, inc- has increased this year. It has, and this is a 30% increase on last year currently, which is one of the worst years on record. Again, this is relevant to Bolsonaro because there was a lot of uh, international headlines uh, playing out last year, last summer, which is essentially burning season because it's dry season in, in the Amazon, but also because a lot of farmers um, clear land, they burn land prior to the rains arriving for either agriculture or in particular um, cattle grazing. I mean, if you look statistically over the course of the last two, three generations, uh, the clearing of land on the Amazon, 92% of land that's been cleared has gone through some kind of aspect of of, of cattle grazing and development. So it's pretty clear you know, the raison d'etre behind that. Um, and last year with this, with, with the headlines that were playing out, Bolsonaro was really blamed for what was taking place. But really, it was the first year of his tenure. So it was just an echo of what had been taking place over the course of a um, of the last couple of generations. But this year, for sure, the increase in, in deforestation and, and fires that have been um, lit in the Amazon, and not just in the Amazon. I mean, Paraguay's had record fires this year. Argentina's had record fires as well. I mean, you've got to multiply this by climate change, obviously, uh, but certainly the policy making of the of the Joe Bolsonaro administration has not only not helped; it's also emboldened um, an extractionist, an economic extractionist uh, tendency, and farmers and land grabbers. Um, and wildcat miners, etc. So um, I think we're only now beginning to see 
the the environmental devastation that is playing out as a result of this of this particular administration's policies. But John, what can we do to, or what can be done to stop this burning? Because in this country, British people are are outraged by this. But it, I wonder what in Brazil whether the people are as vociferous in their opposition to to, to the burning down yeah. of the rainforest. I think it's actually a really good point and one that doesn't play out in the in the international media because actually shouting about it overseas doesn't help because it's it's generally seen as being an attack on Brazilian sovereignty and it's actually. Bolsonaro's standard line of defense to say, you guys, you know, Europe, the UK burned your forests down for economic gain hundreds of years ago. You've got nothing left. How dare you now come and tell us that we can't use our own resources? So I think in terms of actually, you know, achieving um, um, progressive action vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Amazon or any other controlled um, controlled space, the pressure has to be more subtle, it has to be economically driven, it has to be about um, in particular corporate responsibility. I think definitely consumers can can put pressure to bear on particular companies and that's actually taken place in the UK recently with uh, with Brazilian farmed meat and Tesco in particular and this discourse playing out there. It's definitely not something which is going to stop, you know, one day to the next. I mean, there are economic needs of local communities uh, in and around the, the Amazon and there are, there are companies that make a lot of money there. So it definitely is something which um, which I think we all have a responsibility to, to be to be aware of and try and put our money where, where our mouth is. But it's definitely not something which, you know, being just brazenly critical of Brazil or any other country actually achieves much beyond getting people's backs up. So let's move from South America to Central America and to Mexico. And whereas over here, it's uh, Halloween is the, the, the big night out when you go and we've got pumpkins and various other things. Uh, the Day of the Dead is at the beginning of November this year and it's going to be a, a very different Day of the Dead. Yeah, very different day of the dead because of the, you know, the, the, the global COVID context for sure. And definitely one of the culturally distinct things that's happening here. I mean, everywhere you switch on the, the TV or you get your news and there's the, this new lockdown measure, tier three, tier one, whatever it might be. The interesting thing that's taking place here is that along with all the usual stuff of what's allowed to happen, what's not allowed to happen is you get capacity rates for cemeteries at this time of the year. Uh, so if you're interested, you're only allowed to have 50% of the normal capacity. Uh, for people attending cemetery events, which obviously, as you say, re relates to Day of the Dead, which takes place on the night of 1st of November, um, going into, uh, so Night of the Dead going into Day of the Dead on the 2nd of, of November. And essentially it, um, I mean, it takes place just after Halloween and there are some overlaps between them, but really it's about death and reverence and remembering, not about scares. And the perception here in, in, in Mexico, in terms of this kind of pre-Columbian Mesoamerican tradition, is that there's a window of time when the souls of the dead can return to commune with, with families. So here it's a really important event because every family really, it's a, it's a time when families come together. I mean, it's not anything like Thanksgiving in, in the US, but it is a time when people, when families of all ages come together and they'll all have an altar in, in their home and they'll have families, you know, candles lit, families of, photos of family members that have deceased on those altars and really interesting offer, offerings as well, like food offerings, um, drink offerings. And the perception is that 
the dead uh, visit during that night and then the, the food and the drink lose their lose their flavor by by morning and there's a lot of now very famous symbology which which follows the the day of the dead uh, celebrations here i mean i think in 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 a listener's mind's eye that the katrina this lady skeleton you know elegantly dressed with a broad hat appears fairly frequently bright marigolds and, and so on and where i am in the southeast of mexico there's a there's unique traditions all across mexico unique local traditions but but where i am there's a particularly fascinating one where um individuals get buried and then three years later the bodies get exhumed from from the coffins in this little local town called Bomuch, and then they start cleaning the the bones and then every year so then the bones are stored in a little box in the vault and then every year at this time the bones get pulled out of the vault um, and then cleaned and washed with incredible care and reverence over the course of of that night which the families spend in the in the cemetery literally with with their dead and then they get placed back um to await the arrival of another year that's extraordinary detail there john the the mexican people have a totally different attitude to death than, than we do here has it been culturally difficult for you to sort of see that being over there I think I think it's really you're absolutely right, and and it's one of those things where if you think about a Mexican relationship with death as just taking place around there, that I think it would be to misunderstand it. Essentially, as you completely correctly say, it's essentially a, a different kind of relationship with death, which is year round. I mean, the, essentially the the pre-Hispanic, pre-colonial. Um, indigenous relationship with death would be that it's a cycle that um, you know all aspects of life are a cycle and essentially death is a, is an aspect of that cycle so it's continually existing in in and around you know where we are and and who we are and so on and that's very much the the case here for me personally i think yeah initially it was um uh, i guess different difficult i think whenever you travel somewhere or live somewhere else there's always a sort of sense of comparing across cultures and so on but i think it, it actually for me became a really refreshing way of of rethinking our relationship with death i mean i think the western anglo-saxon context of, of death largely i've come to think of as relatively unhealthy because we kind of pretend that it isn't there until it is and then you know package it up into into a, a room that we don't really open but but the kind of the ubiquity of, of death and the the consistent presence of it of it here and the refreshing way in which people talk about it uh, and just coexist with it is um, uh, and how it's front and center is is really certainly refreshing and, and eye-opening in terms of you know this one of those things in life that we all have to deal with whether we mm. like it or not it's just you know ever ever present in some some way shape or form john we're going to leave it there thank you very much that's john bonfilio the latin america correspondent